That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 53. It's titled, Should You Invest in Bitcoin? Suggestions for today's topic came from JD and Jason, who both wanted a show on Bitcoin. And, and I, I first became aware of Bitcoin back, I believe it was 2009, 2010. I was a member of Seth Godin's tribe. It was an online community, and we just, I just interacted, and we had discussions. And one of the discussions we had was on future of money, and somebody mentioned Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is, is a digital – it's a cryptocurrency. It's a digital currency. It's a digital payment system. It was conceived in a paper proposed by Satoshi Nakamoto back in 2008. He began working on implementing the idea of the code, and the first Bitcoin block was mined, and I'll, I'll describe what mining blocks is in a, in a few minutes, but to, in January 2009. So that's sort of where it got its start. And, and I wasn't real big, sort of this, this discussion on, on Bitcoin, and I just didn't really understand it. And then I had some, some acquaintances, some friends in 2012, summer 2012, that I have some friends that are, are, are sort of on the fringe. They're always trying to be the cutting edge, and, and they tend to be very, very early adopters. And they really got in to Bitcoin. We had a, a series of Google Hangouts on Bitcoin, and and so I started looking at it and looking at it in more detail. And it was going to to buy some Bitcoin and started the process, and, and quickly realized that buying Bitcoin at least in 2012 was not an easy thing. You couldn't take your credit card like you could today and and buy some Bitcoin. You couldn't use PayPal. You actually had to either link your bank account, which I I wasn't really comfortable with at the time, or you had to get, I was starting to establish a account at at this, something called Dwala, which was sort of this other PayPal-like thing that had a relationship with an exchange called Mt. Gox, which at the time was one of the leading Bitcoin's exchange. And I'll, I'll talk about that a little more in a few minutes. But I, I started the process. At the time, Bitcoin was about $12 per Bitcoin. And my friends were really, really into it. And we'd have these calls. And then I, but I sort of, I tried to establish an account. I couldn't get it created to get my money into Mt. Gox to establish and buy some Bitcoin because I wanted to buy some. So I gave it up. And forgot about it. And then sort of early 2013, I started getting some emails from, from these friends about how Bitcoin was just thriving. and It was up to $40, and they were just giddy because they didn't have a whole lot of money. They, they, they sold services and, and products online and just were, were getting into to technology. And, and so 
and were a little wary about holding dollars. So most of their wealth, or not even wealth, just most of their assets were in Bitcoin. And, and then Bitcoin went to over $100 later in, in 2013 and even higher. And then I didn't, I didn't hear anything from, from these friends because I thought, wow, look how much money they made now. And I'm kicking myself and I thought, there's a bubble in Bitcoin I need to participate. And I tried again to get my money in Mt. Gox and they wanted me to send them a utility statement in order to verify my identity and and it was it was a, a real struggle. So I, I reached out to my friends and I said, "Well, how, how's it going with the Bitcoin?" And they said it was gone. Somebody had stolen all of their Bitcoin, and and literally, in fact, they ended up homeless for a season in Boulder, Colorado, until they went back to their their family back east because they they didn't have. They didn't have any money, or I'm not quite sure of the the series of events, but eventually they ended up homeless. And one reason that came was they lost much of their assets that were stored in Bitcoin and was stolen. And we'll learn some of the security issues with Bitcoin and, and how one can actually steal Bitcoin. And then I never got. I never. It turns out that even though I never got my money into Mt. Gox. The exchange, their Bitcoin, this was an exchange where you could store Bitcoin, sort of a Bitcoin bank. They lost $600 million of Bitcoin was stolen from their depositors. Mt. Gox ended up going bankrupt in early 2014. So I even got my money in. And, And some of the recent reports suggest that that money those Bitcoin could have been siphoned off as early as 2011, and it was almost like a, a Ponzi scheme in Mt. Gox, whether they were aware of it or not. Investigators are still trying to figure out. But Bitcoin is really, really ingenious and intriguing in terms of how it's put together, and it's becoming more mainstream, and so it's important to, to really understand what it is, how it works, and whether you or I should invest in it. Now, JD, a listener, was kind enough to send me some Bitcoin the other day, and he sent me 0.0078 Bitcoin, or roughly $1.75. So Bitcoin today trades for about $225 per Bitcoin. Back in 2012, when I was looking at it, it was $12 per Bitcoin. It has gotten as high as... $950 $950 per Bitcoin. But even, even at 225 Bitcoin is down 30% this year relative to the dollar. So it is it can be very, very volatile. So JD said he wanted to send me some Bitcoin, and he suggested I go get a wallet, a digital wallet, using an app on my iPhone. So I downloaded this app called Hive, and Hive is a Bitcoin wallet, a way to store Bitcoin on your phone. And what Hive did, it created two things for me, a public public digital address to receive the Bitcoin, and then a private key that allows me to receive and spend Bitcoin. Now, you have public address, you have private key. Again, this is a cryptocurrency, and so it uses sort of the, the latest or, or 
or, or encryption technology is what it uses. And, and a standard of encryption technology is a public key or a public address and a private key, and they have to match, and, and they're connected. So I had that. And so when, when JD sent me my 0. 0.0078 Bitcoin, he signed a message using his private key with the amount of Bitcoin that he was sending to my public address. So it went from his public address to my public address, and it had the Bitcoin's transaction history. So what do I mean by transaction history? Well, Bitcoin, as you might be aware, is not a physical coin, but it's not even a static digital coin. What it is, it's just a digital record of previous transactions between various Bitcoin addresses that is stored in a digital universal ledger that's called the blockchain. So there's this, there's this big ledger in the sky in the cloud that's distributed, and, and all these miners have access to it, and it's, it's called the blockchain. It, it basically is a history of all the transactions with every Bitcoin that has ever existed. And, so, and, and it's public record, so it's, it's very transparent and it's public. And so this 0. 0.0078 Bitcoin has a history of going from one public address to another, to another, to another. And that's all included in this digital ledger. Now, why, why do we have to have this history? Well, again, with, with a digital coin, one of the biggest risks, other than it's stolen, is that it is double spent, right? If it's not physical, how do you protect against somebody sending off the same digital coin to multiple people? and basically ripping them off. And one way you do that is you each Bitcoin has its, its transaction history. And then when you spend or send that Bitcoin to someone else, to another public address, it has to be verif- verified. The entities that verify transactions are called miners. And here's how it works. A series of Bitcoin transactions... So about six times per hour, they're grouped together in what is known as a block. And so a block is just all the data from transactions from one Bitcoin going to another. And the miners verify the legitimacy of the transaction, but they also do something else. They create a a special – something called a hash. And all a hash is, it is a series of letters – in numbers, but they're done in a very particular way that the bit the Bitcoin protocol says they need to be done. In other words, it's almost like a, a secret code or a series, but it's created out of the data that is unique to that particular block. In other words, the transaction data, and it's created out of the hash that was cre- that matched the previous block or the one that was just done before. So every block, which again is a group of transaction data, has to have a hash that accompanies it, essentially seals it off, makes it completely unique. That hash has to look a certain way, and it takes a huge amount of computing power to solve what that hash is. Essentially, it's a secret code that needs to go with the block. And so these computers all over the world are trying 
to solve for the hash. And, and once it's solved, everyone knows it's done. Now, why do they do this? Well, here's what's intriguing about Bitcoin. If you're the miner that solves for the hash that accompanies the block, then you get a reward. Right now, it's 25 Bitcoins. And so you earn a, a fee for, one, verifying the data, which is the primary reason to do this, to make sure nothing is being double spent. And then you solve for the hash. You have a hash that goes with the block. It's entirely unique. And then the block is added to the digital ledger, the blockchain. And that's what it is. That blockchain is, is a series of blocks. And, and this is this blockchain and blocks, along with these hashes, way, is the entire history of Bitcoin over time. And so this is some, somewhat of a complicated way, but this is how new Bitcoin is created. Think about how money is created with traditional currency. The money, how does the money supply increase? The money supply increases primarily from banks lending. As banks lend, that creates new money that flows into the system. But there can be an unlimited amount of money, and that's what creates inflation, as we talked about in a couple episodes. With Bitcoin, there is a specific amount of Bitcoin that will be created. So six times an hour, these blocks are, are solved. And the difficulty of the solving the hash, of finding the exact secret code that goes with the block, fluctuates over time. And it fluctuates based on how many computers are out there, how many miners are existing. Because ultimately, these, all these codes can be solved, and, and they know how long it will take to be solved because it's sort of generating random numbers and you're trying to, to solve it. But it takes a huge amount of computing power to do it. So the difficulty to, to solve the code fluctuates based on how many miners are there, how many computers are focusing on it. Because the goal is to create Bitcoin in a very specific pattern. So right now, miners get 25 Bitcoins every time they solve for the, the hash. And then the number of Bitcoins awarded for each block, each solution will be cut in half every 210,000 blocks. So we have six blocks an hour. But after four years, that solves about 210,000 blocks. And then the incentive will go from 25 to 12. Now, what would incentivize a miner? If you're going to cut the pay in half, ideally, the value of Bitcoin will go up because there's a cap to the number of Bitcoin. There's an upper limit. By 2040, there'll be no more Bitcoins created. There will be 21 million Bitcoin in circulation. And now, again, my friend sent me point, or JD sent me 0. 0.0078. So you can divide it into smaller and smaller segments, but there is a cap to the number of Bitcoins. Now, what's the incentive for miners if you're no longer getting Bitcoin to verify transactions and solving the hash that goes with the block? Well, by then, there'll be some transaction fees. So right now, there's, there's really no, it's this reward of Bitcoin takes the place of the transaction fee, or the transaction fee is very, very low, but that transaction fee over time will grow for providing 
this service because it's a critical service even if it isn't creating Bitcoin. What it's doing is it's verifying transactions. So that Bitcoin that JD sent me could not arrive into my digital wallet until it had been verified and was part of a block and that block was added to the digital ledger or the blockchain. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one program and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com david. That's netsuite.com david. netsuite.com david. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. So what are the ramifications of a currency where there is a limited supply? And like traditional currencies where... The amount of money that's circulating continues to increase over time as bank lends. Bitcoin is the exact opposite, and it should have the opposite impact. You have a, a continual increase of money supply. That means more money change, chasing the same amount of goods. That leads to inflation or a rise in prices for goods and services priced in that currency. Conversely, if you have a set amount of currency, there's a minute, maximum limit, upper limit, 21 million. That means goods and services priced in Bitcoin should decline over value in time. That's deflation. And which has a couple interesting characteristics to it. One, if the dollar supply is increasing, and yet the Bitcoin supply is increasing at a slower rate and will eventually be capped, that should put pressure, underlying pressure, on the Bitcoin to rise in price over time. And it has. It was at $12 back in 2012. It's at $200 a day. It's been a roller coaster ride, but 
as Bitcoin becomes more adopted and more mainstream, that should push up the price of Bitcoin relative to the dollar. But the caveat is it has to be become more mainstream. And then that's definitely, you know, is that the case? Because, yeah, it's nice to speculate in a currency, but what is the point of a currency? The currency is to be used as a medium of exchange to to buy things, to buy goods and services. And so unless there are a lot of transactions and ways to buy and spend with Bitcoin, then there's just not going to be the demand. You just can't have a currency that is there simply for speculation. You want it to be there to use. And there are some really interesting aspects uh, of Bitcoin because, well, one, it's the transaction fees are very, very low. So it's, it's, it, once you get some Bitcoin and there's a service that, that you want to buy, and a lot of companies have started to announce their willingness to sell in Bitcoin. And what has facilitated that are these middlemen. Middlemen such as, I think an example is, I think they were called Coinbase, BitPay are middlemen. They're exchanges, and they have partnered with with big businesses such as Microsoft, Overstock.com are now taking Bitcoin. So you can pay for something from those companies with Bitcoin, and then really that that Coinbase is acting as the middleman. will take that Bitcoin and exchange it for dollars for these companies. And so you're starting to get these middlemen, and it's becoming more established. The big risk, though, is still loss of money, having it stolen, having your Bitcoin stolen. The safest way to keep your Bitcoin from being stolen is to put it in a paper wallet. Now, what what does that even mean? Well, Bitcoin, the way you steal Bitcoin is if you can get, there's always a public address related to a Bitcoin is always available. So, Everyone knows where a particular Bitcoin, which public address that's tied to. Now, you don't know who owns the public address, but all that's transparent. But once you have the private key, you, it's, you can steal the Bitcoin. All you need is someone's private key. And so uh, some of these exchanges, like Mt. Gox, these private keys were stored in a database. And these were able to break into that database, get the private keys, and they could take the Bitcoin. And once the Bitcoin is gone, it's gone. Because that is a characteristic of Bitcoin. It's irreversible. You send money to someone, sign the private key, signed it, it gets verified, it gets part of the blockchain. That Bitcoin's not coming back. It's gone unless that person initiates a new transaction and sends the Bitcoin back to you. So JD mentioned that he always keeps his Bitcoin in a private wallet, a paper wallet, what's also known as cold storage, basically offline. And the way you do that with these these private wallets is you create a new private key, a private key that is completely offline. And the way it's it's you actually, I don't the I'll put a link to a a video YouTube video and the private or the paper wallet service that he uses. But essentially, you download it to your computer, and then you move your mouse 500 times to create this private key, and then you transfer 
your Bitcoin from your digital wallet to your paper wallet, and then it is associated with that private key. And then you can put that, he puts his in a, in a safe deposit box and at a bank, and then it's stored. But what good is a, a digital currency that's in a paper wallet? You can't use it. And so there needs to be, we can't have a situation where you're losing $600 million of depositors' money and the bank, the exchange, Mt. Gox, having to go bankrupt. And so there are new exchanges out there. Coinbase Circle is another one. The way that you actually can get Bitcoin into account is you can link your bank account to an exchange such as Coinbase and Circle. And Circle actually offers insurance. If your Bitcoin is stolen or lost, and if it's held at exchange, so in that case, it's held at Circle, they will refund your money. So they've gone out to big insurance companies to, to protect it. That's what banks do, right? Banks are losing money all the time. You just never hear about it. Thieves break in. Passwords get compromised. The money is stolen, but the banks quietly refund the money. So it, it, there, that does occur. So don't think banks are entirely secure. You can't lose your money, but what you have is trust and confidence that the bank will give your money back if somebody compromises their systems. Bitcoin is, is the same thing as happening. The, the exchanges that are coming as it becomes more mainstream are guaranteed that if the money is lost, they will replace it. Now, that's what they say, and hopefully that's what will happen. And that's what, when it comes to currency, trust is key. We have to believe that there that the money will be there and that it will be recognized by others to use. And so one of the cool things about Bitcoin is there is no central bank. It is completely decentralized. And and that makes some governments nervous in, in the sense that they're used to having a central bank or treasury sponsoring a currency. And we've talked about in earlier episodes what causes people or essentially forces people to use a currency in a given country is their need to have to make ta- pay taxes with it. They have a debt that has to be fulfilled with that currency. And because they have to pay their debt with the currency, then other companies will pay their employees with the currency because it's just easier so you're not having to exchange it. So there's this demand. You don't have that with... Bitcoin, because there is no paying taxes with Bitcoin. But Bitcoin has this global network. It is completely decentralized. It's completely transparent. So all transactions are publicly available. They're all verified. And so you have protection that, that a Bitcoin isn't being double spent. It has advantage of it's anonymous. Nobody knows. They can see the public key, but they can't see who is tied to the public key. It's non-repudiable, which means once the money is gone, as I've mentioned, it's gone, and the tra- transaction fees are very, very low. And it's fast, within reason, right? It usually takes, it might take 10 minutes for the money to arrive in account so it can be verified, but that's the same way with, with the traditional banking system. Yesterday, I sent a bank wire. I initiated the wire in the morning, 
And I got a call in the afternoon from my bank verifying the wire. And only then, after it was verified, was it released. Because they didn't want me sending out wires to multiple people. They want to make sure the account was right. Bitcoin's the same way. Every transaction is verified. But what's unique about it, it's verified, decentralized by miners, computer networks all over the world. And as part, and their incentive for doing so is they get new Bitcoin, which then goes into circulation. And so that is the mechanism for creating Bitcoin. I don't know. I own, well, when I say I don't own any Bitcoin, I own 0.0078 worth of Bitcoin. Will I invest in Bitcoin more? I'm not sure. I'm going to continue to monitor to see if, it, if there's an adoption by mainstream, if, if it becomes easier and easier to store Bitcoin safely and buy things with Bitcoin safely in, in a secure fashion, it'll continue to catch on. I like the idea that there's a set amount of Bitcoin available, but there's some downsides to that. And one of the downsides is deflation, as we've talked about, is really bad if you have debt. So if the value... Uh, if prices of goods and services are dropping in a currency or if there's deflation with a currency, that means the value of debts are rising. And so you don't want to borrow money in Bitcoin because that to get the Bitcoin to pay off the debt is always going to get more and more expensive when priced in dollars. And so you're not – I don't think you'll see big debt markets in, in this currency, which means that it's not going to be like the dollar. But we can have a digital currency that's entirely unique, and but there's also competition. There's other currencies coming out, and so who Bitcoin certainly has a big lead, and so we'll see how it's adopted the the continued adoption by 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 users, whether more businesses accept it, and if they do, then Bitcoin would actually be a great investment because the algorithm, the Bitcoin protocol, caps the number the value will continue to go up over time. That's episode 53. Should you invest in Bitcoin? You can get show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.net. That's also where you can sign up for my Insider's Guide and I'll email those show notes to you weekly. In that Insider's Guide, I'm answering listener questions and providing other valuable content. That's at moneyfortherestofus.net. Last week, I made a change in my stock portfolio. I reduced my exposure to China. My, my exposure to China, China stocks had done very, very well, and my holdings were up 20 to 25%. And I took profits and I described the rationale and the specific reasons on the money for the rest of us hub. So members were able to see and then decide in terms of mainly to learn, right, here is a decision, portfolio decision, and why it was made in terms of how the Chinese stock market was well overbought, as overbought as it, it, it had been since 2007 and some of the other things going on in China that led to the decision. Not that I know China stocks are, are going to plummet or they're going to soar, but how I was making decisions just based on risk management, looking at the criteria I look at, such as market internals, investment conditions, and valuations. If you would like more information to help you manage your own portfolio risk, you can do that at the Money for the Rest of Us Hub. You can get information at moneyfortherestofushub.com. 
Everything I've shared with you in this episode is for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice, simply general education on money, investing in the economy. If you have any questions, please email me, jd at jdavidstein.com. Have a great week.